You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. Over the past year, Americans have come to rely more and more on Amazon and the convenience of the retail giant's at-home delivery service. It's been a handy tool during a time when any trip out the door came fraught with pandemic risks. But what if this one-click lifestyle comes with hidden costs? Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi, and today on the program, we'll be speaking with Alec McGillis, a veteran journalist who, for his latest project, set out to understand the massive changes that have swept American life in recent decades. What he found, what he went looking, over and over again, were stories that ran directly through an Amazon warehouse. He tells those stories in his new book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America, and he joins us now to discuss. Uh, Welcome to the program, Alec McGillis. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So obviously, Amazon has been in the news quite a bit recently. Uh, We've got the failed unionization attempt in Alabama. Uh, We also have a just announced pay hike for workers. Uh, And I do want to hear your take on all of that in just a little bit. But uh, first, I I actually want to introduce your book a little bit more because this is not your typical book about corporate exploits. Uh, In your book, really, the average Americans are the key players that you're interested in. Uh, What you're documenting is how their lives have become more frantic and less secure with each passing year. So uh, it strikes me that this is a very big story, Uh, you know, the story of wage stagnation in America, the story of inequality in America. Uh, And there are a lot of different forces, a lot of different players that are involved in this story. Why choose Amazon as the through line to tell it? That's a very good question. That's that's really where the book started, actually. The book started as a book about disparities and inequality in America. That I was I've been traveling the country as a reporter for years and noticed these growing disparities, regional disparities between sort of winner-take-all cities like San Francisco, Seattle, DC, New York, Boston, and then a whole bunch of a larger group of left-behind cities and towns. And I grew very concerned about this and concerned about its effect on our politics and and decided to write about it. And I settled on Amazon as the frame for this story of regional disparity for two reasons. One, um, the company is simply so ubiquitous now that it's so so omnipresent in our lives that it's just a handy thread to take you around the country to look at what we're becoming as a country and as a society. It's, it's sort of use Amazon as a metaphor for what we're what we're turning into as in this America. Um, but but it's also a handy frame because it itself helps explain the inequalities and the disparities. One reason we've ended up with such concentrations of wealth and prosperity in certain places in this country um, is is that we have such concentrated such a concentrated economy um, so, so, so much concentration of of uh, wealth in certain companies and in turn the places where they reside whether whether it be San Francisco or Seattle or somewhere else end up with this sort of hyper prosperity um, so that that's how I came around to Amazon as the frame for the story of, of national uh, a landscape of such growing disparity. So it both reflects the changes of America's and also in a large extent is an accelerant of those changes. And I, exactly. I suppose, yeah, and I suppose that that's a good place to bring up the other part of the title, uh, winners and losers. Who are the winners and who are the losers in this process? You know, in a sense, I, I, you could almost have, have uh, 
chosen a different subtitle because in in a way I almost see every all of us in a sense as losing out with, mm. with these kind of disparities. You you have the the left behind cities that have seen sort of the the lifeblood of their of sort of daily commerce kind of sucked out of them, um, whether it's you know in the form of say you know what Google and Facebook have done to to kind of the, the local news business where all the digital ad revenue money kind of flows to those two companies now and flows to San Francisco and uh, the Bay Area. Or, or you see it in, in, in retail, where you have this huge shift toward e-commerce, and and the money's kind of sucked out of these local economies and into Seattle. Um, so you have these all these left-behind cities that are obvious losers. But then even the winner-take-all cities that are that are um, that are now benefiting from this effect are in fact struggling in their own right, struggling with with these this you know just notorious housing unaffordability problem, um, homelessness, displacement of longtime residents, loss of character, uh, congestion. Um, so in a sense, this, you know, having, having these enormous disparities is not good for any of us that we're, we're, it throws everything off kilter and it, and it's, and it's really just, it's not healthy across the board. So you do have, you've, you know, obviously specific winners like a Jeff Bezos who made, Fifty-eight billion dollars mm-hmm. uh, in added wealth just last year, um, but but broadly speaking, for the country, I think the books books suggest that this is not good really for any of us. Speaking with ProPublica reporter Alec McGillis, and these processes that you're talking about, they have really only accelerated over the past year. Uh, it's been a banner year for Amazon online sales. Tell us a little bit, I mean, the, the, the scale that you uh, document and that others have documented is, is just so immense. Help us wrap our head around it just a little bit. Yeah, it's it's so hard to wrap your head around it because the numbers are so astonishing. I mean, Amazon was already huge before this before the pandemic, it was it already uh, controlled more than forty percent of all e-commerce at a time when e-commerce was growing. It already had well over a hundred fulfillment centers, you know, these giant warehouses around the country, um, and and you know, it already had just a huge share, very profitable share of the the cloud business as well. The most profitable com- part of the company is actually not the retail side, but the but the Amazon Web Services, you know, these these data centers where. So much of our of our internet traffic, whether it's Netflix or Zoom, runs runs through those. And but then then on top of that, this past year just saw this just stunning um, uh, acceleration and and intensification of that dominance. So the company um, the company's uh, revenues grew forty four percent the first quarter of this year compared to last year. Um, the uh, E-commerce, of course, is boomed generally, but Amazon's share of, of that cut has, if anything, grown even larger. The, um, the company's uh, stock price nearly doubled. Bezos's wealth up almost $60 billion over the year over year. The, um, they've had to add about 50% more warehouse space to deal with this incredible surge just in a single year. Um, they've had to hire more than 400,000 more people in the U.S. alone in just a year. Um, it's just, it really, it, it, it's, I had no idea when I set out to do this book three years ago that you'd be looking at this company growing so much massively more dominant um, in, as, as the book was, was coming out. And and it's all, of course, due to to this 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 shift over the past year, where where we as American consumers, a lot of us who might have felt some compunction about about using Amazon before, 
felt like we had, you know, sort of a permissional, permission or approval from the authorities to, to go the full one-click kind of route. Um, not, not just permission or approval, not, it wasn't just a lack of guilt. It was that we could almost feel a sort of virtue in, in going full one-click. And, and, and the big question now, you know, is moving out of this year, out of this awful year, is whether Americans sort of moderate their, their one-click habits or if this is an expansion that's sort of here to stay. All right. Well, let's get into some of the consequences of those one-click habits in just a a second. Real quick, I want to let anybody know who's just joining us that this is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today on the program, we are speaking with veteran reporter Alec McGillis about Amazon and its massive influence on American life, uh, which he chronicles in his new book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. So, Let's really zero in on what is different about this corporate expansion as opposed to other corporate expansions that we've seen in the past, because we've seen a lot of uh, companies grow over the years. We've seen a lot of companies displace other companies, and we've seen uh, so many examples uh, over the last century of, you know, workers getting caught in the middle and and their lives getting disrupted. But uh, your book is really trying to demonstrate what is different right now about this particular moment. And I think that you illustrate that most poignantly, perhaps, with uh, your recounting of the story of Sparrow's Point and the steel mill that used to be there and uh, what is there now, which is an Amazon fulfillment center. So tell us a little bit about Sparrow's Point and uh, the story that uh, unfolds there. Sure. This is really, in a way, kind of the, almost the spiritual core of the book. Um, and it was a s- story, really, of the, the transformation of work in this country and what, what work looks like. And and um, this is a place called Sparrow's Point, which is a peninsula just outside Baltimore, down on the water, um, southeast of the city. Um, I live in Baltimore, and and so had always been kind of vaguely aware of what had been there, but but it was just blown away by my by my research to discover just how massive um, this the steel mill was that had been there for really the entire 20th century. It was it was at Bethlehem Steel uh, Works that by the late 1950s was the largest steel mill in the world with about 30,000 workers, um, an entire uh, company town, just sort of adjacent to the, to the steel works. And um, the, the mill um, ended up going out of business in the first decade of the century, finally closed in 2012. Um, and it has been wiped clean off the face of the earth. It's just astonishing. This entire industrial skyline that was there, this massive industrial works just gone. And it has been replaced by this, what is essentially a logistics business park, a whole bunch of warehouses, including um, two now two Amazon, large Amazon warehouses. And, and I, t- somewhat amazingly, was able to find a man who had spent three decades working at the steel mill, a man by the name of Bill Bodani, who um, did all sorts of different jobs at the the mill, Uh, very grueling work, often very dangerous work, but well-paid. He was making about 35 bucks an hour when, when he finally left. And, and, and he really liked the work. He found incredible meaning and purpose and camaraderie in doing the work. And um, after he left, he his pension got slashed uh, because of the bankruptcy of the company. And he ended up having to go back to work uh, to help support himself and his wife in, in his late 60s. And he went back to work at the Amazon warehouse that had been built up in the exact same spot 
spot as the steel mill. And so he was back there driving a forklift, um, making, um, starting out just 13 bucks an hour. So uh, almost barely a third of what he was making uh, at the steel mill um, with much less feeling of sense of meaning and camaraderie on the job, um, just under constant pressure from this young supervisor to deliver more and more pallets on his forklift, barely any time to go to the bathroom. He's an older guy, had to go to the bathroom a lot, but you only get so much time at Amazon to go to the bathroom, as we know. And so sometimes he would actually have to just go in the corner behind a forklift. Um, so an incredibly sort of much, a, a degraded kind of work, a much degraded kind of existence. And, and it's important, you know, to, to note that the the work at the mill was dangerous. There's, you should not. I should. We should not idealize it. Um, all sorts of injuries, often fatalities. Um, he he ended up having to leave his job. You know, eventually because of one of his injuries. Um, but nonetheless, he just found um, all this real sort of meaning, value, and purpose in that work, and stayed with it for all those decades. Whereas at the warehouse, um, he, he barely lasted three years before he quit, which is not uncommon. The, the turnover at those jobs is typically about a year, actually. So he, he, he lasted more than the norm. And one of the factors that perhaps made that Steelworks job more fulfilling that you talk about is the fact that there was a sense of camaraderie. There was a sense of there were other people that you were working with for years on end. They knew you, you knew them, they had your back. And that sense of camaraderie simply isn't there at an Amazon fulfillment center. Exactly. Um, and and go, going along with that camaraderie, of course, is, is actual solidarity in the form of a union. Um, the, the, the work at the, at the fulfillment center uh, at, the, at the steel mill was originally not unionized. It was in the early 20th century, it was very, very low paid, very high pressure, very crazy hours, crazy demands. And, but they um, managed over the decades, finally in 1941, um, in, in the middle of World War II, they managed to, 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 to unionize the mill. And so conditions vastly improved, pay vastly improved. They got much more say on the job. And in a way we've now kind of come full circle where you're back at, we're back to that um, and that exact same piece of land. We're back to non-union labor that is uh, not paid as much as it deserves with you know crazy inequality between the workers and the plutocratic owners. Um, very little say on the job, crazy, uh, crazy expectations on the job and, 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 and very little sense of fellowship. I was um, speaking with another former worker from the steel mill who still lives near there. And he, he noted that, that now when you see the workers leave the warehouse, they go tearing out of the parking lot at the end of their shifts. They drive, just go speeding out, um, driving so fast that they've had to put these big steep speed bumps in there. And, um, and, he, and he just struck him that it was such a contrast with the days of the, of the mill where where guys would roll out of their shifts and would so often, of course, just end up going to the bar together or the diner um, as a group. And and it was you, you felt this real sense of community and fellowship and family with your with your fellow workers. Um, there's just nothing like that now at the warehouse. I was speaking with a warehouse worker recently, who, and I brought this point up, and he said, yeah, there is no way that I'm going to go have a beer after work with Joe because I don't even know who Joe is. He might be, you know, working 50 feet from me in the warehouse, but I have no idea who he is. It's just a vastly more atomized uh, kind of existence. Uh, speaking once again to Alec McGillis, a senior reporter with ProPublica, whose new book is Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. Let's talk a little bit about why it is so many people would accept such a job. I mean, uh, surely from 
uh, Amazon's perspective, you know, it's it's offering uh, these jobs to workers. Those workers are accepting these jobs. It's that's how capitalism works. Uh, and and um, from the workers' perspective, they're accepting these jobs because it's the best thing that they can find. But as as we can tell just from that one example of Bill Bodani, it wasn't always the case that that was the best job that Bill Bodani could have found. His job uh, several decades ago paid more. So why is it the case that for so many Americans now, uh, working in an Amazon warehouse is the best job that they can find? Because in a lot of these communities that have just been absolutely hammered, places like Baltimore or a place like uh, Dayton, another city that I focus on in the book, there's they've been such through such wrenching loss and upheaval um, uh, as a result of, of globalization, trade deals, all these different effects that resulted in the closure of, of a Bethlehem steel or of the auto parts makers in the Dayton area. Um, and then of course, also the wipeout of brick and mortar retail. Um, the, these, these, you know, Amazon likes to point to these jobs at these warehouses and say, look, we're bringing hundreds, couple thousand jobs into um, into a given community with, with with this warehouse, and what that overlooks, of course, is that those are not truly freshly created new jobs. They there there's a context for them. There's a context of just massive job loss in brick and mortar retail. Um, the, the 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 job of the retail salesperson has um, has been the hardest hit job in the country in recent years. Um, you know, more than the coal miner, more than the newspaper reporter. It's been the retail sales clerk that's just been crushed and and so in a sense these warehouse jobs are replacing the job of of that retail sales clerk but it's a much different kind of work right it's a much um it's a much more physically taxing kind of work than the job of a of a, a salesperson in a in a in a department store it's also much more uh, much more lonely and isolating than the job of the retail salesperson who whose job is essentially a social one. Um, the job, in a way, the job of the warehouse job more resembles a, an assembly line job in its, you know, in its kind of like physical nature, but it's also less well paid than the than than the, the factory job. I saw in the paper just the other day that the average manufacturing wage in the U.S. is still, despite all the losses in manufacturing, is still about thirty bucks an hour. And so these jobs at Amazon started half that. Um, and there's also not just less pay, but again, this less of a sense of, of meaning. In, in in the factory, you were at least making something. In the warehouse, you are you are picking and packing things that were made halfway around the world. Mm. And Amazon had a role to play in uh, the hard times that many of those local retailers uh, are having as well, as you uh, write about in El Paso in particular, uh, the, the, the impact of Amazon uh, on that city and its uh, local retail uh, uh, economy. Yes. I mean, a, a, a big part of the story of, of Amazon's effect on the country is, is its effect on small business. And um, and to tell that story, I, I focus on some office supply dealers in El Paso. These are sort of like the Dunder Mifflins of El Paso, you know, that sell sell staplers and paper and and uh, and uh, you know office toner or whatever to to locals. The stuff we don't think about. The love exactly the stuff we don't think about. The unsexy stuff we don't think about. They sell it to local governments and local school districts and local businesses, and they have you know twelve or fifteen employees, and they're they're very rooted in their in their local community, and they're very proud of the service they provide. They you know pick up the 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 empty printer cartridges at the end of the week, that kind of thing, and they um, they are now under like so many other small businesses under enormous pressure from Amazon because Amazon essentially 
first of all, goes to their customers, this local school districts and governments and, and businesses and says, look, why don't you just buy all your stuff, all your supplies, your office supplies and other supplies from Amazon? It's just easier. It's more convenient. It's one click. Just the way you buy your personal stuff there, just buy all your business stuff there. And, um, and then they go to the office supply companies and say, look, um, your customers are going online onto Amazon. Why don't you just come sell your stuff online with us on the Amazon marketplace? Um, and it'll just be easier for everyone. And you can sell it to the whole world. You know, the, the world's your oyster on, on the website. And what that overlooks, of course, is that when, you, when they sell through the website, they, have, they lose a big cut of their sales. Um, anywhere from 15 to 30% roughly gets lost to Amazon. So all that revenue that would normally stay locally is kind of, again, just kind of being sucked to Seattle and to Jeff Bezos. And, um, and this is happening you know, across all these different sectors of, of small business to the point where now, um, these, they're, you know, the term for them is third-party sellers. They're, they're companies that are selling on the Amazon website, through the website, um, but, um, you know, but sort of using the, using the website as their, you know, as, as, as essentially kind of the marketplace, as the new mall. And, and this is hugely lucrative for Amazon because, of, because it gets such a huge cut of these sales. Now, well more than half of the sales on the, on the website now are these, quote, third-party sales um, where, they, where Amazon just collects this massive cut. And, and, and for a lot of these companies, these, these, these businesses, they, these merchants simply feel like they have no choice because, because everyone is now going there to buy their stuff, to buy stuff, to look for stuff. And so you just feel you have to do it. You end up you losing this huge cut of your of your profits to Amazon that the, the, their cut of, of their take grows over time they, they sort of ramp up the you know the, the 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 commissions and fees as you go and you feel like you just have no choice but to, to but to remain yeah all right I'm going to reintroduce you one more time uh, you are listening to KCBS in depth I'm Keith Manconi today on the program we're talking about Amazon and its far-reaching influence on American life with Alec McGillis, once again, a senior reporter with ProPublica, whose new book is Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. So uh, laying out the case there a little bit, but I have to ask, I mean, are we potentially laying too much at the feet of Amazon? It is a massive company, but it's still just one company. And a lot of the trends that you're talking about, the uh, declining wages, the uh, divergence uh, across America and in the wealth gap, these are trends that go back decades before uh, Amazon was even on the scene. So is all of this really Amazon's fault? The There absolutely are larger forces um, acting in our economy, globalization, technology, and e-commerce. They're um, these are things that, that would be happening no matter what. And in fact, Amazon's sort of main response to me when I was talking to them for the book was, look, we know a lot of these jobs are not, are not the greatest. Um, and, um, and we know that, the, that there's a lot of what, what you're describing in this book is all pretty bleak. But the fact is that these are, there are larger forces underway. And if it weren't us, it would be someone else filling this role. There'd be some other big e-commerce company that would be that would be in this position. It just kind of happens to be us by, by happenstance. And there's a certain grain of truth in that. What it overlooks is that, is that the company has, has, made, has made 
taken certain actions, made certain decisions that have exacerbated um, a lot of these problems. It has, it, it does have agency. We all have agency, and and the companies have agency. They have been especially aggressive in pursuing tax avoidance at all different levels, um, uh, you know, of 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 the government. They have been. They have. Their their demands on workers are especially. Um, uh, onerous their um, their decision to place their second headquarters in Washington DC the wealthiest city in the country um, instead of putting it in somewhere that could really have used the boost like a St. Louis or a Cleveland um, is is only going to exacerbate the, the regional disparities that the book describes um, we have always had um, divides between wealthier and poorer places in this country but those divides have gotten a lot bigger in the last couple of decades. And, and one reason for that is the growth of these tech giants that have, um, that have gotten so big and so powerful that, that the mere fact that they happen to be in one place or another ends up having this inordinate effect on our national landscape. And so it's not just Amazon, it is also the other tech giants. And I, I focused on Amazon, um, partly just because they have more physical presence, a physical manifestation around the country. So it gives you more of a story to tell in that sense, more of a landscape to describe. But, but we are now at a situation where these divides have gotten bigger than ever, and, or, or certainly bigger than they've been since, since the last Gilded Age. And, and, and the book does not, book is not, does not make an explicit argument for, for solutions, but it definitely leaves you with the impression that if we wanna deal with these disparities, that we're going to have to um, to sort of renew uh, our commitment to to antitrust and taking on monopoly in a way that we haven't done since early in the 20th century. Mm. All right. Well, uh, let's actually focus on a little bit more recent news and some of the people that are trying to change some of the trends going on at Amazon. Uh, of course, a few weeks back, we're talking about a closely watched unionization push at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, which uh, ended in failure when workers overwhelmingly voted against union creation. Uh, just getting to that vote, though, had captured a lot of attention because this was the farthest any effort to create a union at an Amazon warehouse uh, had ever come. So for union supporters, this loss came as quite a disappointment. Uh, now we're a few weeks down the road, uh, have had some time to reflect, uh, wondering for your thoughts on what the long-term significance of this unionization push and uh, whether we should expect to see more of that at Amazon warehouses. We're definitely going to see more activity. It'll be, it'll be interesting, more ferment. Um, I do think that this whole the fight in Vesemer did um, did 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 bring a lot of scrutiny on the company and the conditions in the warehouses, and 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 definitely spurred activism at other warehouses around the country. I, it's it's it'll be interesting. It's unlikely, I think, that you're going to see another big push for an actual union election at a warehouse anytime soon. For the time being, I suspect that most of the organizing is going to be around more around walkouts, sit-down strikes, that sort of thing, D disruptions of you know of the of the warehouse uh, flow to try to bring attention to conditions and, and gain some improvements. Um, because what we saw in that election is just how hard it is to win elections under our current labor law. Um, for decades now, we've had, you know, the labor law has been really been kind of slanted against, against uh, organizing, which is one reason that we have, we're down to six or 7% 
union of unionization in the private sector uh, in the U.S. The, and there's been attempts to, to change the laws, and they keep running into the Senate filibuster. Um, there's a law right now that's been passed, legislation that's been passed in the House, the U.S. House, called the Pro Pro Act. And but it's one once again, you know, up against the, the filibuster in the Senate. Um, you know what you saw in a Investor was was extraordinary that they got that they were able to get the point where they were able to hold a full election. It was the first time there'd ever been a full election at a at, a, at an entire warehouse, Amazon warehouse. Um, but when you have a company able to hold these constant kind of captive audience meetings with workers, um, while the while the union has a really is not able to access workers in the same way, um, it just it just makes it makes it really tough. Um, and there's also, I think there's this, this broader challenge of, of what we sort of alluded to earlier, which is the, the low expectations of workers now that, that you are, um, this is a job that you're not gonna take for very long. You're not hoping to build a career around it. You're not hoping to, to sort of sustain your family around it. You're not hoping to, you know, this is not something you're gonna do for your life where you're gonna to try to really make it much better paid and much more meaningful. It's just a job you're doing for now. You're, you're probably not gonna be there for much more than a year. Um, you know, pays better than fast food, yes. Um, uh, it's, um, you know, you, you're just, you're not, when the, when, the union, when the union comes to you and says, this could be so much more, you, you deserve so much more. This could be something that you really, that could really sustain you. A lot of workers just aren't even thinking about these jobs that way anymore. You also don't even know anyone perhaps who's, who else is in a union in your family because we've gotten to such low saturation. It's not like you, you've seen your, your mom and your dad in the union and you've seen how much, um, how much more, you know, pay or benefits or, or simply, um, uh, autonomy and kind of voice in the job they've gotten because of that. So it's, it's, it becomes almost a foreign concept for you. So it's, it's definitely, it's definitely going to be, um, be tough to, uh, you know, to, to organize the warehouses, but, but it, it's a fight that remains very important because, because again, this is how, if we're going to lift up the work, um, lift this of this work to something that's more sustainable the way that it happened at the steel mill where where work that was once very low paid um in the early 20th century became something more sustainable because of the union um it's it is going to take more organizing all right well there's uh, so much that more that could be said on all these points but we only have uh, about a minute left and i i can't imagine a lot of listeners are probably thinking to themselves well what does this mean for my own personal Amazon habit. Uh, I surely uh, was thinking that as I read the book uh, myself. And I know that you mentioned a second ago that you're not here to give any prescriptions or, or uh, make any kind of uh, call for a boycott. But how do you think about these issues when you're making your own purchases? I, I use Amazon very, very little. I don't belong to Prime. I just use it as kind of a last resort. If I can't find a given book, you know, I might buy from them. But in general, I, I do believe that it's so important for us now coming out, of, especially coming out of this year where where, it was, where we just all went, went so heavy into the one-click um, approach that we that we that we do kind of re-engage with the physical world around us, um, with with our with the businesses in our community, with you know our cinemas, our theaters, just all the different you know manifestations of of the actual um, sort of physical world around us. Because if we if we don't, if we just stay completely hunkered down in the one-click approach, then it's all going to wither around mm. us, and and we'll be so much the poorer for it. Yeah. All right. Well, an important reminder is uh, spring is upon us to 
crawl on out of our hidey holes. Uh, we have been speaking to Alec McGillis. He, one last time, is a senior reporter with ProPublica, whose new book is Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. Alec McGillis, thanks so much. Thanks, Keith. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.